0: Unpopular opinion, but.
1: Unpopular opinion, ( Teresa) unpopular unpopular opinion, unpopular opinion, unpopular opinion, Unpopular opinion. (앵커) unpopular opinion.
0: You're listening to Unpopular Opinion, a podcast for professionals from all walks of life who want to hear success stories from innovators who've won by taking the path less traveled. In each episode, recovering journalist and content marketer Ashley Ambersaba interviews individuals who have prospered thanks to their genuinely unpopular opinions, despite warnings from naysayers, threats to their careers, and colossal obstacles. All rebels are welcome. Welcome to Unpopular Opinion. I'm your host Ashley Ambrosava, and this episode is brought to you by my friends at Audience Ops. Audience Ops is a content marketing agency, and they produce every episode of my show. If you're looking to launch a podcast for your brand or your business, please let me know, and I will hook you up. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Bree Olmstead, executive business partner at Refine Labs. Bree, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks, Ashley. Is this thing on? Am I on? Oh,
0: yeah. You're loud and clear.
1: <laughs> I'm trying to make um, that my calling card, but um, you let me know. I'm open to all notes.
0: <laughs> absolutely. Um, well, um, I'm excited to talk to you today. And if you can't tell by my terrific ensemble, my get up today, my unusual get up, um, we were going to be talking a little bit about being, quote unquote, too much And your unpopular take was that being too much is actually a superpower.
1: Yeah. Do you want to share a little bit, like a little reminder about like how we got here together? I want to hear your perspective if you want to share.
0: So I've commented probably on LinkedIn a lot about this, and I know you've had times that you've had too, but um, there's just been a lot of times in my life where I have got the feedback from, it could have been maybe well-meaning people, but that I needed to tone it down or that I was showing up too hard, too much to whatever the case might be. And when you get told that a lot, and even for me, probably as a kid, um in school, I had had feedback like that from individuals, teachers, other kids, maybe who probably didn't mean to be hurtful about it in any way, but it was meant to be. It could have been, it could have been both. Sometimes (laughs) I I probably had some um, frenemy enemy action happening in school, but um, it just changes a little bit the way that you think about being a little bit more conscious and being a little less you every time you come into a new environment. Um, And I was um, excited that you had been commenting on things like this, just because I know that you're passionate about showing up authentically. Um, So I would love to hear a story from you about a time in your life when um, you realized that being too much was actually a superpower and not a hindrance and how that experience kind of shaped your outlook.
1: Yeah, when you sent me this question, my first reaction was like a physical like visceral one to like resist it. And so part of my commitment to myself for my own growth is to be curious without judgment when I feel this sort of uh resistance and uh, check in with my values. So anyway, powerful question and It does inspire a story that wants to be told, a story that I hold and that I think about sometimes. And I think there's some real power in in telling our stories and being seen and being heard. So thank you for that. Um, In high school, I was involved in theater, in public school, and in the community. And I was part of a summer workshop that had been running for decades. I'm from the LA suburbs. And this workshop that I spent a summer in, when summer before I left for college, was run by um, some famous actors and uh, stage and film who had been running this this summer workshop for youth in my community for years. And there was a couple of shows that we put up at the end of the summer, but it was also like an intensive for, especially for uh, youth that wanted to do stage and video acting. So we spent a day, learning about the framework for method acting too long to don't read. If you are not familiar, it's basically pulling from your own lived experience to infuse a character. So if there's a character that you don't have the same experience of, you need to pull from an experience you've really had. So they asked us to get in two lines facing each other, like partnered up and at, you know, like the count of three to unleash the most like our raw emotion from an authentic point of pain. So wow. I took the assignment seriously and I went in as you know an angsty 17-year-old who'd had a lot of life to live up till that point and a lot of adverse childhood experiences. Those are aces for anyone in public health. And I was authentic. I went real and I responded from my point of authentic pain to be like really transparent. I didn't go to like the mommy pain or, you know, the sexual assault pain. I went to like the first heartbreak, the first, like, that's what came up for me anyway. Said a famous actor running the workshop when he like wanted people to stop, I was still emoting. And I basically got like Talked down from my real pain. So, method acting, pull from the real experience, show up as your authentic self. And I really went for it. I felt safe in the environment. There was a lot of work put into like safety and care in the environment. And I got straight up told I was too much and that I was overacting and that it was totally like overkill. And I was stunned. I was like, this is not overacting. This is the real me. So, it was the most explicit time up till that point, And the memory still really sticks with me where I was way too much. I think that fast forward 20 plus years, the professional lesson we hear all the time. It's so buzzy in the professional world to show up as your full self, to show up as your authentic self. And I think that as leaders or professionals, if we're asking people to show up as their full selves and we don't have the tools to support that unboxing or we don't have the frameworks or the environments to authentically allow people to be their full selves that I think we're acting unethically if we're then like creating these environments to ask people to do that. So it's something I think about as a leader and a professional around what are my personal tools for psychological safety, where are the guardrails around psychological safety, um the environment and the context matters and I'm not going to set the stage if I don't have what it takes to support the potential outcomes.
0: Wow. Wow. That is a powerful (laughs) experience. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. I feel better. That's a wrap. Great episode. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned when we were talking before, too, that um, other than you have being told that you've been too much and things like this, that you're actually drawn to people who are um, perceived as too much as well. What do you think it is about these kind of people... um, that show up very authentically that, um, attracts you to them.
1: Mm, Okay. So I did say that. And then I want to check myself because sometimes it is not the case. Sometimes I feel like running the other direction, shutting people out, not showing up for like a matter of my own safety, conforming, choosing my battles, like whatever label or euphemism I want to give it. But I want to get really curious about that. And I want to check am I turning my back to somebody's kind of too much energy because we are values misaligned? I'm sure there's people who are too much who are um, espousing beliefs that directly conflict with my, you know, spiritual, mental, personal values and like indicators for relationship. That's different that kind of misalignment is different from being uncomfortable with something that's unfamiliar. That's something I want to lean into. And before I had a, um, uh, enough self-awareness to frame it as, you know, thinking about how like I'm impacted by someone's energy, I had different ways of describing it. Uh, sometimes just as an empath, I felt connected to other empaths. There's just like a magnetism. I had, uh, actually the woman who made my wedding dress, we had this really like connection around some of our energy. And she had this little saying, like for anyone who was watching the video, the I'm uh, waving my, my hand in front of my face, kind of by my eyes, the whatever in me sees the whatever in you, like that, which we can't name, but just that there's a kindredness around. And so I've spent some time like unpacking what that really looks like. And I'd say- Before I became a mom, I was already really interested in attachment theory and how that early childhood experience shows up in the professional setting, especially in power dynamics like supervisor, supervisee, or leader who might not directly supervise, but somebody who has like hierarchy status over another person, how attachment theory shows up. So I'm a social scientist. I was recruited into healthcare from a master's in social science. I was thinking about these things. And then I become hyper aware and maybe fixated since becoming a parent, thinking about reparenting myself, healing those pieces. Um, I think that I look for a point of connection and when I can't find one, sometimes it's about a sameness in affect rather than like some real shared hobby or interest that has to do with how people show up. Does I answer the question?
0: Definitely. Okay. <laughs> Can you catch everybody up um, just a little bit about your background and what you've been up to?
1: I appreciate this question. I made a big career jump about a year and a half ago. So I have been sometimes struggling with how to answer it and sometimes thriving in how I show up. It depends on the day. So right now, as you mentioned, I work for Refine Labs. Some of your listeners are marketers and they know Refine Labs. I had never been in the um, B2B tech space and uh, I was interested to make a radical change in my career as this sort of an exercise in self um, for this stage and phase of my life. So I, I mean, I think to be honest with myself, I want what I do professionally to be the least interesting thing about me in this season of my life. In the past, I was really driven by my career and I can imagine a future where that'll be true again. And I uh, sort of felt like I arrived on the ladder climbing and I had some uh, really impactful at bats for projects in at the local community, state and federal level that I was really proud of in healthcare. And um, I moved locations, I became a mom and I was being recruited into this space. Um, It's a little bit of ego death to go from the executive team to being someone's EA. I am the executive business partner, which is uh, the reframe of badass jack-of-all-trades, can do a lot of internal ops, executive assistant, and here I am. So I'm super grateful to Refine Labs. It's given me a chance for kind of limitless growth in a a lot of opportunities, internal operations and comms, some strategic work, dabbling in some customer work in the consulting marketing space, a lot of interesting opportunity. And in real estate, we say, sometimes you got to do this to do that. And so I say this with a heart full of gratitude and love to refine labs, that it's my do this to do that job while I figure out what I want to be next. Um, I've done quite a lot of consulting across capacity building and transformation spaces in uh, the nonprofit sector. And between becoming a mom and COVID, those word of mouth um, opportunities dried up. And so I've been nurturing opportunity to get back into spaces where I can work with people who want to work differently and make change.
0: Thanks for asking. I think a lot of people can relate to the job in between the job um, scenario and a lot of, we don't talk that much about it. So it was interesting that you brought that up um, organically.
1: Thank you. I'm getting close to 40 and I, um, you know, there's the an elephant in the room about switching from nonprofit to for-profit. There was a really enticing calling card on the salary that allowed for me to really focus on my kids. So I think we have to be like honest when we're mm-hmm. talking about like ego death and the important things we want to do next. Um, and I think I'm just figuring it out, which feels pretty good.
0: You've made a connection um, when we talked about the common thread between individuals who are perceived as too much and the concept of trauma. Mm -hmm. How have you experienced this connection in your journey?
1: I think a lot about trauma and I um, am interested in it because In public health, we talk about trauma-informed care. It's um, day one of training, it's day umpteenth of ongoing work. What we don't do in public health is talk about trauma-informed workplaces. So you have practitioners who are serving communities, uh, serving our friends and neighbors, who are not taking care of each other in-house. And when I was on the nonprofit public health, healthcare delivery side of the working world, I wondered what was happening in the boardrooms and the executive tables at our country's um, unicorns, series A, series B, bootstrap startups. I thought if the most brilliant Healthcare minds in the world are burning out at rates faster than any other profession, except maybe early childhood education and special education teachers in our country. I think those statistics are higher than healthcare and social work. What the fuck is happening in for-profit business? And what if we brought these mindsets into for-profit business? If we want to heal and grow communities, families, individuals in our country, we have to pay attention to all sectors. So I don't know that I answered your question directly, but that's the place I'm coming from. I want to demystify this buzzword about trauma. I think we talk about psychological safety as a more palatable option than trauma. And I think a long story to a long point, I'll just end with bringing this idea of too much into a framework of trauma is definitely multidirectional by broad stroke. There's those people who carry trauma who then show up authentically and are labeled too much. There's those people who are labeled too much by a system that wants to perpetuate conformity and are then traumatized. So is trauma the chicken or the egg? Not sure. Probably both in a lot of cases. I'm not qualified over my pay grade. What do you think?
0: I think it's tough to identify where it's coming from when you put it like that and I wonder with with trauma that's not handled or not taken care of the cycle what happens to perpetuate that outside of like your current being outside of your space that you're in like what you take with you even if it wasn't yours like what are you doing with it when you leave and move on and how are you delivering it to the next environment and the next people it's just a never ending.
1: Yeah. And trauma stigmatized, right? Yeah. Um, We don't like to use that word. No, no, it's stigmatized. I have, uh, private conversations with professionals who are interested. I have this, this, uh, maybe it's a superpower, some magnetism where people who on the surface, you'd be surprised, um, that, are connecting directly with me and coming to me. I mean, surprise in like a business context. You wouldn't peg us as water cooler buddies. And people come to me to talk about the real stuff, the shame, harm, and hurt. So a lot of times our shame is connected to our core experiences, some of which are traumatizing. Um, Our hurt is that which we feel maybe out of control of things that have happened to us, but we've all done harm too. And there's, you know, that's under the umbrella of our shame also. So I have these like high power, um, yeah, leaders, executives, um, all over the sector, you know, marketing, sales, operations, executive, prowess, growth, et cetera, who, um, you know, want to talk about these real experiences, loss, death, depression, anxiety, not sure where they're going, relationship strain, parenting struggles, workplace misalignment, um, people with experiences from, you know, challenging childhoods, military action, who then I, I, I mention trauma and they say, I don't know if I'm traumatized because they imagine that their pain isn't painful enough.
0: It's funny how we weigh all these things against other people too. Um, We don't feel valid feeling a way if we don't have as quote unquote bad as an experience of somebody else that we know. And then we don't feel valid making the claim that we are being impacted by something. It's just, it's a lot. I think
1: <laughs> yeah, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and there was the commercials playing all the time about like the starving children in Africa, and it became this like calling card of children of the 90s of like clear your plate, there's starving children in Africa. So when I have a uh, a veteran who saw action tell me that they're not sure if they have experienced real trauma, I just think of this like overarching analogy of like being told explicitly, that our struggle isn't as struggly as someone else's. There's a lot of problems with the starving children in Africa trope, but I think it helps me make my point.
0: You mentioned um, to me that when it comes to the being too much philosophy, that there's kind of two camps of people who respond to that. And there's those who have over your life encouraged you to kind of go with it and be louder and be more you and then there are others that come to you and suggest that maybe you should quote unquote stay in your lane as they yeah. as they say <laughs> now um can you kind of catch everybody up on how these opportunities have influenced you over time like both camps of people
1: yeah i think that a lesser healed version of me was re-traumatized and triggered and would fixate On the ladder. Um, Now, I think I've in part made a career progression out of serving some of those same types of personas as um, a closest council sounding board. Um, And when I think about in my personal life, like my family, uh, and then also in the work world and Beyond and other sort of relationships, people who criticize, make implicit or explicit comment around how I show up, are feeling insecure. This is a this is a reflection of their own self, right? I think that's what I would boil it down to. So to talk about my family, I think my my family members who are also way too much. they're really secure in themselves and they find delight in other people living out loud. They feel filled up by people who are living authentically have are shining their light and their heart. People who are, um, I would take bring this back to early childhood experiences and attachment theory, people who are committed to blending in to playing the uh you know like wearing the judge hat like talking about others criticizing everything from you know how i play and work what makeup or hair i wear like these are people who are a lot less secure in themselves so then when i translate that into the professional world i think that it's usually um i have very little line staff or other like service level workers who are critiquing the way I show up. It's leaders across industries. And I think it's because um, they feel like there is some threat to the status quo if we work different. But many of those same leaders wanna bring me in close for private conversations. So let's ask ourselves some questions like, what are we hiding here? And what happens? Like, I'm confused. Is it, is my authenticity a secret? Did you discover me and you need to hold me for your own? Like, is it Genesis syndrome? Did nothing exist before you arrived? And you like to be able to pull me in as a sounding board, but you don't want anyone to know that you need a sounding board. I'm not sure. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah. You Like So what comes up?
1: What comes up?
0: you. I have a lot of discussions with people that I don't know that well, but that feel like they know me or I feel like I know them just over LinkedIn and things like that, who you would think wouldn't be on there at all because they don't comment on anything Mm -hmm. that i'm doing and they don't like any of my posts even if they relate to them because they're ashamed or they're afraid a lot of the times it's fear they don't want the people in their job to know that they're maybe unhappy or they don't want people in their past to come back up and maybe fight them on their feelings and it's just it makes me it makes me feel bad that people can't be who they are because they're afraid of getting um punished by that um and that but they want to talk about it like they're yes. out there and they want to talk but they don't feel like they can because they just think it's going to come back and bite them and that that just makes me sad does that fit into my uh, hypothesis around the
1: shame, hurt, harm. Yeah. Umbrella. Yeah. I'm testing it. I,
0: I, I think (laughs) that there's a lot there. I, I feel like that's one of the assets I'm going to have to pull out for this episode now too. Um, maybe some kind of formula there, but, um, just quickly, I want to take a minute to thank audience ops for making my podcast possible. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. They make it easy for me to focus on finding amazing people to talk to like Bree. So I could just have a good conversation with her. And then they take care of all of the social media, the production. And I can just, you know, focus on finding the people and having the um intelligent and thought-provoking conversations like I'm having today. Um, so thank you, Audience Ops. Okay, I think having a me. platform like this is like a super gift.
1: So what Audience Ops is doing to promote your show and the other, uh, clients that they're working with, either connected to your word of mouth or separate from you. Uh, we can change environments and dialogues and landscapes, the more that we get to have these authentic conversations. So it's way beyond the sponsorship that you're noting.
0: It is. um, They're making a difference um, in a lot of the people that I do and I don't know yet's lives and I appreciate that and I feel honored to have the opportunity to be having the discussions that I'm having and there isn't a time that I have a guest on that I'm not learning something new. Like it just hasn't happened yet. It opens a lot of um, doors for me to be a better leader and a better employee and a better human. Um, so your commitment, I'm going to change gears a little bit here, Mm -hmm. but it's all involved of course, to, um, anti-racism and inclusion aligns with your vision of a more just world. Mm -hmm. How does your perspective on being too much tie into these values and what kind of efforts has it guided?
1: Well, I think that there's a lot of, of disparity and disenfranchise in the world. And there's, uh, some social theorists note and name this propensity for the oppression Olympics, like which oppression is, you know, needs to take center stage. And as a white woman talking to another white woman, I think that if we can't have conversations around racism and anti-racism, then we are, uh, we might. We just need to phone it in, call it a day. We can't advance, in my opinion, um, the lived experiences of people of any identity category if we're not talking about racism and anti-racism within a white supremacy culture in the United States. And I want to stop there and talk about the real risks of talking about racism and anti-racism racism on any platform, including this one. Like, let's get real. What makes the cut? What makes the edit? Are we already... Uh, are you losing some audience buy-in just by having a guest who is centering racism, anti-racism? The answer is absolutely yes. And um, I I care about things beyond racism and anti-racism, but if we aren't talking about these things, then I'm gonna find spaces where that is part of the conversation because I think it is the direct link to unravel um, the shame, the hurt, and the harm across all of our lived experiences. And I think white leaders who say show me the ROI on that, what's the business case on bringing racism into the discussion are showing their their true colors. So, you know, in some spaces it's radical to use the term anti-racist or say the word racism. We already talked about how trauma becomes like taboo. Um in some spaces it's radical to unequivocally love black and brown people as a white person. Like, can we talk about that? I think the fact that, you know, being critiqued in the business environment as a white professional for talking about racism and being labeled as too much is the entire, like drop the mic on white supremacy culture in American business.
0: I wasn't even sure
1: if you would ask me the questions. So hats off to you.
0: It's it, I've noticed it's funny because we talk about the shame of going and um and having actual, you know, big difficult things you're going through and you're afraid people are going to judge you. So you go privately to somebody like you and you talk to them one on one. But when I post things about anti-racism, people have no issue showing up in the comments and being absolutely backwards in every mm-hmm. way. And then they have no issue living out loud that way. It, it mm-hmm. it's just, it's unusual to me. Like, yeah, why why is it so triggering for people?
1: Um, I'll tell you why it's so triggering for people because of multi generations of design. Uh, we're speaking from different states in the U.S. a country that was built on the backs of enslavement of mm-hmm. black and indigenous humans who uh, and, and colonization people don't like to talk about these things people who don't like to talk about these things are people who benefit from the systemic perpetuation of not talking about it um so what can we do well here's a few things we can do we can decenter ourselves and use our power to lift up the voices of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. We can decenter ourselves and lift up the voices of gender nonconforming people and of uh, queer people, disabled people, and other disenfranchised people. That looks like listening more than I talk um, in socials and teaching the algorithm to feed me. Connection opportunities with individuals that are talking about the work that I really care about because there is enough support for people for whom these topics are
0: not a priority. Amen. Thanks, Ashley. Can you share a time when you felt your approach challenged the status quo in a meaningful way? It could be professionally, personally, anything. Bye. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, I think, I think that there are times, you know, I could tell stories that center myself around times that I spoke up. Um, and I think, I think it's important to be really careful around the way That I tell those stories and who I tell them to and when I tell them, because am I trying to earn badges on my ally anti racist sash or am I trying to dismantle white supremacy culture and advance. Anti racism and lift up people who are historically disenfranchised and marginalized in our communities and in our businesses so. I think something that I'm really proud of, that I'm willing to share here is uh, unequivocally questioning within the business environment, hiring and firing practices, and who gets promoted when and how. So oftentimes somebody who doesn't look like the majority executives or a more G, a majority uh, board, will interview and the talk track is they're just not a fit. So if we get committed to curiosity about what a person means when they say the person isn't a fit, is I it a skill? It. Is it a hard skills issue? Or is it that we're concerned that because we don't yet have people quote like them, that they won't then quote fit? So I think I'm most proud and willing to talk about my commitment to asking questions that are framed as the hard questions within the professional setting. And uh, my commitment in my past role, I had a large team with a large uh, multi-pillars of service delivery lines and a large down report. And as the... Organizations scaled, there became more necessity for uh to develop new leadership positions. And the tendency in a motion like that is to go look for external leadership and to hire someone with external expertise. But what does it look like to grow our own? And usually we rise up, we have the opportunity to rise up talent who Otherwise wouldn't be given the opportunity and there's a myriad of reasons for that socioeconomic status educational background. We've already talked about race, gender, sexuality, disability. Um, So I think I'm a queen maker. I think I've had the chance to. Hold a line on the conditions for people to rise up in their careers by their own talent and hard work, but because I put my reputation and my name and my body on the line again and again and again, and asked leadership to look in the mirror when they're making these decisions.
0: How do you empower other leaders to be able to do that and to stand up? Like, do you have any techniques you're using to get people to be more comfortable doing that?
1: I think that, like, I believe we all have the answers. And so I take the approach. I don't think there's one right way to do most things like in chemistry, in, um, you know, like there are, there are times and places, like if you're an electrician, there's one right way to do it. But when we're talking about building teams, um, scaling a business, there might be formulas that have worked, but do those formulate formulas? recreate that which you and I are talking about disrupting, then maybe we need to take a different approach. So my technique when I talk to leaders and offer sounding board um, is to create the conditions for them to get brave and do their personal work and interrogate why it feels uncomfortable to change the way that it's being done. And you know what? The answer is that some leaders do not want to change the way that it's done. But after 2020 and George Floyd explicitly, white leaders don't want to say in public that they're deprioritizing DEI and and B initiatives. They will only say that in private or they'll say that with their actions, but their mm. words are that they support them. So I think, you know, it's two techniques. It's holding accountability for matching the walk and the talk. As an internal advisor, I want to change business practices to lead to my vision of a more just world and a collective vision of a more just world. If on the micro and meso scale, that doesn't seem possible within the business, I want to hold leaders accountable to match their talk to their real walk. If you can't change your walk, you better change the talk to line up so that you don't do more harm to uh, to employees and to your business community. That's the first technique. And the second is empowering people that they know the answers and creating the conditions and space for them to find them find I, the answers for
0: themselves. From the Floyd, um, from the murder of George Floyd um, on, I've noticed a lot of companies on their job descriptions, just empty dump DEI talk yeah. on the job descriptions. But you talk to the employees who are actually in the organization who are just, it didn't live up. Um, when the funding went down, they deprioritized, they laid off all of our DEI people and initiatives. And you could tell that everything was just like more like a public relations ploy, Mm-hmm. Um, to make sure that we were doing what the other comp- competitors were doing, in, and I it just bugs me. And it's Good. like core values too. Like even core values in a company can be empty and meaningless when you actually get in, um, because the leaders are not living them out, and the people don't believe in them or even know them that <laughs> that are at the company. Oh, yes, yes, it bugs me. Empty, empty meaning, meaning in language on job descriptions, on company web pages on any of that. Um, I just want to catch everybody doing it and out them. Yeah.
1: Nobody is uh, confused. I think there's games of the emperor wears no clothes and we have real bills to pay. We have real processes and services to push forward. Um, so if we can't burn the building down, we can disassemble it one paperclip at a time. So that looks like having authentic conversations, one-on-one, empowering people um, to learn and unlearn and decentering ourselves to make space for the voices that uh, deserve just as much platform as the rest of us. And you know what? Marginalized people are not going to wait. They are not waiting. They have not been waiting um, for anyone to save them. do we want to learn and grow together or do we want to be left behind? Because I don't believe that the status quo is going to persist into future generations.
0: The next generation um, coming up looks like they're going to be kicking all of that down.
1: The children are all right
0: and the future is bright. Amen. Again, you've been dropping <laughs> a lot of mics today. I appreciate it. It's good Thank marks you. for me to pull Thank you. your beautiful quotes later on. But um, I want to talk a little bit to you about when you have doubts about Mm -hmm. things, when you're not feeling confident, how do you navigate that and be true to your convictions? Like, what, what does that look like for you?
1: Okay. So I recently had an experience where the more I take in earnest care of myself, the less able I am to live outside of my truth or to do work that misaligns with my values. Um, it makes sense now that I've like, you know, hindsight. So I find that I, when I find myself in doubt, I, I look to my own house, you know, my own physical, mental, and spiritual health. If I am doubting my convictions, likely there's misalignment with taking proper care and order of myself. And if I can start with the basics and fundamentals, hydration, rest, play, um, self-care becomes completely desensitized as a term when we talk about it. I'm talking about like in earnest care of my own self, then it's nearly impossible to doubt that which I feel conviction for. I also look for inspiration and strength from uh people who are living out loud and doing the work.
0: As an empath, which I am too, and it could be a difficult thing to be, um, especially in an unfair world, which we live in, um, how do you have boundaries um, in not taking all of that with you everywhere you go? And this is probably as much for me as it is yeah. for anybody tuning in. Okay. Well, this
1: one, um, I think it's the perpetual whip, work in progress. A real unlock for me came recently when I heard a reframe of boundaries. It was new to me, maybe not new to you or others. The boundary is the thing that I perpetuate between you and me, your behavior, anything that I Uh, would want, like if you cross that boundary and I feel a thing, those are my expectations, not my boundaries. So when I confuse my boundaries and my expectations, then I often leave holes in my boundaries and I'm left depleted or take on too much of what isn't mine to hold. If I am honest with myself about what my boundaries are and I hold those up, then I can do um, work that is heavy, work that is connected to shame, hurt, and harm, um, and stay whole and well. How does that land?
0: I I like how I've never heard it defined like that.
1: Yeah, it was That's new so for me. You know, it's a, there's there's grief in boundaries work because if I am really honest with myself about a boundary between you and me, I have no control over how you respond or whether you honor it or not. So there's, you know, some fear in holding a boundary in place and potentially grief if I perceive loss in what I would have hoped for in my expectations of our relationship. Um, I think that to be healthy and well and to stay in my convictions, I have to accept some loss of relationships if, you know, there's, Uh, breaches to my boundaries that are, um, outside of my hard-lined values for myself and my family.
0: What kind of advice would you give people who want to overcome the resistance from those who want them to conform? Ooh. Well,
1: I think that, I'm, I think of this like classic trope of the personal as political. So for a person who is unsure where to start, I think it's about finding your community. Where are your people getting honest with yourself around like who you break bread with, which relationships are non-negotiable and how you're going to navigate them. Um, I, have not thrown all of my racist relatives to the curb. I still know them. Um, That's a complicated topic, for example, within um, anti-racism work. Or another example is that we rely in the system on a real paycheck and sometimes find ourselves aligning with companies and teams that don't perfectly reflect our vision of Uh, living in our truth and our ideal values. And um, we have to take good care of ourselves. So I think um, I'm processing on the fly here. And two things come up. The first is find even one person that the whatever in you sees the whatever in them that you have like a true alignment with Um, I think that's why people come into my DMs. I think that's why people side Slack me that don't engage with my content in the wild within my company or in professional or just for fun social environments. Um, Because there's like a curiosity and a yearning to live in our truth and people want to seek that out. Uh, To that note, if you're a person listening and you have any interest in these topics, Let's talk. Um, I know lots of people who want to connect with you, including me. And if you're a person who wants to argue about whether, for example, there's a place for discussing anti-racism on LinkedIn, come into my DMs and stay out of the people of color's threads. Um, The other, I said, I'm being cheeky, but also serious. The second point that I would make as a starting place is... To take a look around, like we're familiar with the um the sayings, put your oxygen mask on first, or you have to fill you can't pour from an empty cup, you have to fill your cup first. The game changer for me was when somebody who knows me well and cares for me said, Stop lighting yourself on fire to keep others warm. So am I doing like visceral irreparable damage on myself for a slight comfort for someone else. Because I think a lot of people who self-identify as empaths can relate. Let's stop that shit first and see what happens. It's uncomfortable to make that change. Let's support each other in, in knocking that out and see what happens
0: next. Looking ahead into the future, what kind of vision do you have for what was your unpopular take here, which was that it's a superpower to be too much? Do you have any hopes for the conversations that might come from what we talked about today?
1: Yeah, I don't have any delusions of grandeur that I invented this take or that I have any stake in owning it. Um, I think that if let's name it, as two white women who have been told throughout our lives that we're too much, we have um, one star in the galaxy of experience of, say, a Black professional woman who has to learn white culture without that reciprocity of us learning theirs. So I, I think that looking ahead, I I already am seeing the future play out in my lifetime that some of the most powerful, inspiring, intelligent change-making voices are already achieving mega platforms to have their voices heard. And I'm here for it. And if there's anything that I can do to support the voices of some of the strongest, most brilliant change makers that are already doing the work, then I'll have, can look back at my life with satisfaction and fulfillment. Um, I think that the impact of my unpopular opinion is today. It is now we're seeing it. Uh, There's young people who are not waiting to like get into a good college and land a good job to climb the ladder, to make an impact. There's, 10-year-olds and 15-year-olds and 20-year-olds who have the same access to the tools that many of us who are decades beyond them are using to build our platforms and have our message heard. Um, You don't have to arrive to get heard. And I think, you know, I'm looking to the youth to be my mentors. I'm looking to how I participate in Readying a workforce for their
0: arrival—that's
1: um, the future that I'm going to be part of. And I think there will be still a parallel future of the status quo in the next ten and twenty years, and it's going to fizzle out and it's going to be boring as hell. And I'm not going to—I'm not going to be at its helm. I'm going to be with the change that's already making waves.
0: I love that. Um, what kind of resources would you like to leave with people? It could be about any of the things that we talked about yeah. today. I love that.
1: Um, I think given limited time, let's focus on anti-racism and neurotype. So especially making space to lift up black and indigenous women and gender non-conforming people specifically from both of these areas, anti-racism and neurotype. um, These conversations are happening loud. We met on LinkedIn. These conversations are happening loud all over LinkedIn. If they're not in your feed, there's a reason. And you can start with yourself. Um, I would suggest within your industry doing some keyword searches on, for example, uh, neurodiversity or anti-racism and looking for professionals in your field who are already talking about these things. Um, Some of the voices of Black women that I am most excited about today are um, Jessica Winder, who's in the people op space, Dr. Akila Kade who is in the DNI change making space for major corporations Jessica Pharma who I don't know personally who's in the uh, people ops space also and uh, so many more who I didn't grab to list now but I think we should put in the show notes I think um, I think the time is now to change our hearts and minds so that we don't get left behind um, also for the show notes, I would love to like link some songs of some, uh, black and indigenous creators who are also singing, creating content and music about some of these topics. Um, Tony Jones, the new I do, I think she specifically has put out an album, um, affirmations for grown ass women. I'm here for it.
0: I, I'm going to make sure that I include everything we talked about. And if you think of anything before this comes out, I'll make sure that I add that to the show notes as well. Great, so I'm going to drop free. you
1: some other uh, LinkedIn voices that I think we should be paying attention to.
0: And just plug on Jessica Winder. She did come on my show. If anybody wants to go back and check out her episode, um, she was, I think either in num- guest number two or three um, when I got my show going and she, had a tremendous episode. Oh, definitely go back and check that out. Um, I closed all of my podcasts asking, um, people who come onto my show to debunk an unpopular opinion and I can't wait to get into yours.
1: Okay. Uh, am I allowed to F bomb here?
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Absolutely. Scarcity mindset. Fuck it. Scarcity mindset. Fuck it we can just, you know, we can make that a track. Okay. Because scarcity mindset keeps us small scarcity mindset keeps us afraid. Scarcity mindset keeps us in our boxes. Scarcity mindset keeps us conforming scarcity mindset holds the system of white supremacy in place, which hurts everyone, even white people. There's no space for scarcity mindset. There is enough. Check yourself, check each other scarcity mindset. Fuck it. I feel like you just composed an actual <laughs> song. <laughs> and I didn't know I had that talent and
0: I've uh, opened a lay down because, some tracks yeah. with you <laughs> later. Uh, that that's actually why we've come here today in, in costume me. <laughs> uh, yeah. So
1: I did yeah, I did text Ashley like half an hour before the episode. And I was like, bring a costume, fabulous hat, costume accessory. And she showed up in a, a faux fur boa and a hat and I brought this is my great grandmother's garden hat I've worn it to weddings I wear it to tea I, I love that have, hat. I also have a full-length velvet cape um it's green I was in a cape, wedding it's I was a druid there was a costume wedding and I was a druid but let's be real like let's show up in ways that make other people uncomfortable, like if I came to work in a in a um sixty year old garden hat and a uh, velvet cape, um, there's a space for that in every corporate environment. But I'm still me. What do you think, Ashley?
0: I I have come to the office um in person in the old days before COVID in this hat. <laughs>
1: I think you have uh, one of your promo pictures, my fo- uh, feature. It that is, hat. it is. I,
0: yes. Uh, I, I have multiple fedoras from Halloween costumes. So, this is not actually well made by any means. This is cardboard inside of it from a party supply store. So, it's super comfortable.
1: <laughs> well, let me get real with you. So, you and I met through LinkedIn. You were one of our biggest fans of a, a podcast, a short run podcast with big impact. And you were in the comments every week. And, um, I was, uh, new to using LinkedIn in the way that I'm using it now. And I didn't know what to do with you or make of it. And <laughs> you're too much. You are too fucking much. I didn't know what to do with it, but you know what? Look at us now
0: wearing I'm our hats honored. and our costumes. Thank you for remembering that. <laughs> the The podcast in question is called Talent Destination. Um, for people who want to go back and check it out, it Thanks. isn't live, right? Updated anymore, but it was amazing. What did you have, like twenty four episodes? Yeah, right? we had a good
1: run, and 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 things worth saying.
0: Thank and you for people all should you did definitely to promote us. us. Honestly, every company that is looking to get better um, with their people operations, getting better with leadership, getting better with just building like a foundation that of talent of a place that people actually would want to be a part of, like that podcast. Like it was my favorite of that year. Um, so I guess it was in twenty twenty two through the peak of it. Yes, um, loved it. Well, not I enough. want to sign
1: out with one more unpopular opinion is that, uh, if people think you're too much, so they should just move over. Cause there's plenty of us that are here for it.
0: <laughs> Slow clap <fate laughs> and the, with my hat into the microphone. If people are not <laughs> watching this on, with the, on YouTube with a video, like I kind of apologize, but just go back and check out the end at least.
1: <laughs> I'm not crying. You're crying. Also don't confuse my tears for weakness
0: exactly. Uh, where can people go if they want to find more content from you?
1: I think right now, you know, let's just uh stay in LinkedIn. I've got other places and spaces. I think that's um where people they can find me in the comments of all of your posts. That's probably the place that they should look for me. Um and then also in my DMs. Let's uh, let's let's work different.
0: Thank you again for coming onto this show and for having, um, this idea and belief and for making me show up in this boa. Like I, I don't even know all of the things to thank you for. Thank you for showing up in my comments on LinkedIn and for talking to me, um, DMing me. Um, she's definitely helped me through some difficult times too. So thank you for, thank you for being like somebody who I could uh, talk to about things going on, whether it be at a job issue, a life issue. You've been very open and willing to jump on a call with me at times. And I definitely appreciate that. So my she lives pleasure. up. She lives up everybody. <laughs> it's my sincere pleasure, Ashley. Until next time. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Unpopular Opinion. This episode was produced by Audience Ops. If you're looking for help launching a podcast, Audience Ops handles all the legwork, so you can focus on providing the subject matter expertise. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow Ashley's show on Spotify,
1: Apple, or YouTube.